Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, if you want to get a your story widely read on the Bloomberg Terminal, write stories about Wall Street bonus pools, write stories about big investment banks, or write stories about taxes. And that's exactly what we have today. <laughs> Most read story, Matt, as you've been calling out today, Biden eyes first major tax hike since 1993 in next economic plan. We have one of the co-authors of that story with us, Laura Davison, congressional reporter for uh, Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Laura, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a sense of what the strategy is for the Biden administration here with their tax policy. Are they simply looking to roll back some of President Trump's 2017 tax changes, or is there something new fundamentally here? Uh, yes, and basically they are uh, looking at rolling back uh, the, the corporate tax cut, raising that rate to 28 percent, raising the top individual rate for uh, for wealthy taxpayers. Uh, but then they're looking to do a whole lot more. So kind of the, the big notable thing here that will be a huge that would be a huge change is this capital gains tax increase. So for people making more than a million dollars, they would raise that rate to almost 40 percent. Uh, right now, you know, it's around in the low 20. So that would be a huge, uh, huge deal for lots of investors. They're also looking at, at a whole host of other things, state tax changes, how um, offshore corporations are taxed. Uh, you know, this, this whole infrastructure plan could cost somewhere between 2 to $4 trillion. Uh, and they're looking to offset a significant chunk of that with some tax increases. Now, it's not going to be easy, right? I mean, obviously, Americans don't like to pay taxes. And um, a lot of people feel like they already pay too much in taxes. Um that's why it hasn't happened. A major tax increase hasn't happened since 1993. Yes. And if you look, you know, Republicans basically across the board are uh, universally opposed to any of these ideas laid out. Uh, so that means that Democrats will have to do it by themselves, uh, which is tricky from a from a legislative process and also politically. You know, you look at some of the moderates in the Senate, you know, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, or Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, who might be resistant to some of these larger scale changes. They might agree, you know, to some tweaking around the edges, but something that's going to raise, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars or, you know, several trillion dollars uh, might be a, a reach here for the Democratic Party. So, Laura, you know, we've heard time and time again, administration to administration, that all we really have to do is close some of these loopholes. I mean, how many times do we have to read about big corporations and, and wealthy individuals playing, you know, effectively a zero percent tax rate while the rest of us schlubs, you know, pay, you know, kind of a much higher rate? Is there any teeth to that? Is there any appetite for pursuing that type of strategy? There's a little bit. So one thing that does have some bipartisan support is giving more money to the IRS to really clamp down on audits. Audits have hit record low levels in recent years, you know, less than 1% uh, for even, you know, really wealthy taxpayers. So that's one area that, that they... That they generally agree something needs to be done. And you look at, you know, you give the IRS a uh, dollar more for audits. They can usually collect between three and five additional dollars. So it's a pretty good way to get some revenue, uh, you know, without actually having to raise rates. However, you know, that's not unlimited. You can't give the IRS $1 trillion and expect them to get $5 trillion back. There's just not that much in, in unpaid taxes out there. It's, um, it's interesting. I've 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 wondered this for so long, and maybe since you write about taxes only, you can answer. Why 
does everyone think it's fair to have a corporate tax when we're already taxing the owners of those corporations on dividends and capital gains? So they, this is kind of the, the system that the U.S. has decided is, is the way they want to go. Other countries uh, have, you know, if they either have no corporate tax or a very low corporate tax, but instead they have a value-added tax, which to spare everyone of the, the super wonkinesses of taxation, it's basically a sort of an incremental tax in every step of the process. Uh, Republicans really don't want to go there, but they, you know, kind of there's a lot of, uh, you know, economists would say that a corporate tax is a very ineffective way to go. Is there any possibility of getting a flat tax rate? Like everybody pays his or her uh, share regardless of what kind of tricks you play. Like everyone pays 20 percent done. If we got rid of all the lobbyists, that might happen. But until then, I think we're going to have a, a very complicated tax code with lots of carve outs for various different it's the lawyers. <laughs> it's always a lawyer's fault. All right. So, Laura, uh, Janet Yellen recently said that the government has not yet decided whether to pursue a wealth tax that's been urged by the likes of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. What's the latest? What do you think this administration will do as it relates to a wealth tax? The administration has been rather cool to the idea of a wealth tax that Warren has pursued. You know, this idea of, you know, that whether uh, if you're a really wealthy person, you know, Jeff Bezos, that you would pay a percentage of your total accumulated wealth each year to the IRS, whether or not you, you know, your fortune gained money or lost money. Um, the, the Biden administration has not totally closed the door there, but they Biden didn't run on that. I would think it highly unlikely that that becomes a favored policy. However, they're looking at all sorts of other ways to tax the wealthy, if not a wealth tax. So looking at you know, raising income rates, raising the estate tax, um, doing things like this capital gains tax, which will hit that same group of people just in a different way. If they figure out a way to tax the rich, will they lower rates for the rest of us? <laughs> Well, that is one thing we saw in the stimulus package, sort of effectively, you know, with the child tax credit that we saw, that is kind of the other side of the scale, you know, for most people kind of under $150,000, if you have kids or under 50000 in income, if you have kids, you got an effective tax uh, decrease in this in this bill. On the other side, I don't know that there are more uh, tax rates, uh, tax cuts coming, however. Is there a sense of timing, Laura, about when the administration really wants to push this tax plan? So they've really kind of hit the ground running here. They're looking, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond just the tax pieces. They're looking at the transportation pieces. They're looking at health. They're looking at energy. They're looking at all this stuff. And that's the work that's happening in Congress right now to kind of figure out what does this full bill encompass. You know, throughout the spring, I think we'll see some movement there probably in May, start seeing proposals come out. Um, you know, there's some deadlines later in the fall, kind of in, in September and, and mm-hmm. August, that we could see some, some action-forcing deadlines there. Laura, thanks very much. Laura Davison there writes for Bloomberg News on tax policy. Paul, is there have you thought about is there a specific portion of your earnings that you feel like it would be fair to pay for the to the government? Like in some way, you know, intrinsically fair. Uh, I don't know about it intrinsically fair, but they got to come up with something that is fairer. Matt, do you use cash at all? Or are you pretty much a car tap kind of go uh, person. Just, just my phone. I pay for just almost your... everything with my phone. Yeah, yeah. I used to be, pre-pandemic, a pretty big cash guy, much to the chagrin of my kids who don't even know what it is. But hmm. uh, I tell you, the pandemic has changed that. And now my, you know, my card usage is up and the cash usage is down and fintech is all the rage here. Let's get a cash sense of- Cash is so dirty. 
I, you know? I know, I know, but I, boy, I don't know. It's just, it's my behavior's definitely changed. But <laughs> let's get a look and see what's going on in the world of payments. We can do that today with Jeff Sloan. He's the CEO of Global Payments. Global Payments is a publicly traded uh, company. NYSE GPN is a symbol. Market cap of about sixty-three billion dollars. And over the trailing twelve months, the stock is up about twenty-five percent. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a sense of how your business uh, was impacted and it continues to be impacted by the pandemic and I guess the changing consumer behavior. Well, thank you guys very much for uh, for having me uh, this morning. So I would say in short that COVID-19 really drove three to five years of technology innovation uh, in the span of one year. Wow. So many of the trends, uh, trends, Paul, that you had just, uh, you had just mentioned, which is to say a shift toward digitization and away from cash were occurring over very, very many years and decades here in the United States, but really globally. But what the pandemic did is it took that gradual shift uh, and really moved it um, uh, three to five years ahead. A great example of that is one of our biggest businesses, which is really e-commerce mm. and omni-channel uh, sales, uh, which last year grew for us uh, about 20% uh, in revenue despite the pandemic uh, year over year, excluding travel and entertainment, of course, because people weren't traveling much for business. But for those areas, that 20% growth um, accelerated from 15% pre-pandemic, and the estimates we've seen as recently as this morning um, are predicting that that economy in the United States will be a trillion dollars a spend as soon as next year in 2022. Jeff, one of the things that... Um German business owners and especially German taxi drivers love to do is pretend that their uh, machine isn't working so that you have to pay cash. Right. And they're always, always lying. But um, the reason they do it, of course, is because um, they feel like it's too expensive to take. Well, I used to say plastic, but now it's like, I guess, to take bits. Right. Um, Is it still expensive for business owners or uh, or you know gig economy workers to accept payment via phone etc it depends on the type of payment that you're uh, that you're taking so we have a very large business in uh, in asia and you probably have seen uh, the advent even pre-pandemic which is accelerated here of what we call qr codes so there's those funny looking computer things that you can scan on your phone and it throws up either a menu or some kind of payment so those are actually the same as a check that's actually ACH facilitation. So the cost of some of the payments, particularly in um, safer commerce channels where you don't want to touch anything, to use your example, like the back of a cab, if you pay with a QR code, it's the same as you really paying with a check or with cash, which is to say really minimal uh, frictional cost. And the global payments, we have the largest footprint um, of that type of technology uh, really in the world. So that kind of trend actually benefits us. By the way, Jeff, you know, here in Europe, people have been paying each other back and forth with digital checks for decades, really. You know, I mean, we just wire each other money um, since I was a kid in, in Germany. In the U.S., I still don't know how to just shoot my mom, you know, if she needs $20,000 for a down payment on something, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a hassle. Is that getting easier in America? Yeah, the answer is absolutely. So account to account, which is what you're describing, account to account technologies have really been predominant in Europe for very many years. And there's also something called faster payments, uh, which we have in Europe, which means it settles the same day or settles overnight. And as you rightly said, in the United States, it takes a bit longer. But the answer is, as part of the shift in technology innovation coming out of COVID-19, we're seeing faster payments 
come to the United States. So a move toward debit acceptance, which is a means of the account-to-account transfers that you described. A great example of that is Venmo. So take a look at PayPal's Venmo. Take a look um, at Zelle, which is the bank's uh, equivalent to Venmo here in the United States. Those are person-to-person and really ultimately account-to-account transfers. So all that's getting easier here in the United States. And all that is good news for us because really for us, the enemy for us is, is cash. As long as we're doing something that is digitized on an electronic basis, uh, we're going to be involved in the transaction. So things like person-to-person, things like contactless commerce, safer commerce, QR codes, all good news for global payments. All right, very interesting. I was going to say real quick, Jeff, are we going to go back just real quick, like 20 seconds? After the pandemic, are some of these habits going to go away? Are we going to go back to the old habits? You know, I don't think so. Let me give you a great example. So we have a very large fast food. We call it quick service restaurant business. Last year during the pandemic, we did $1.5 billion of fast food orders on your uh, phone, as you were describing in the intro. So you kind of pay with your phone, uh, uh, either look at your phone, it gets authenticated, or you pay with your thumbprint, and then we facilitate the delivery to you via DoorDash or something like that, or pull up in a drive-thru and we'll just hand it to you. Yep. Uh, I don't think consumers are going to go backwards because that stuff is just so convenient and so easy. Who's yep. going to say after the pandemic, <laughs> gee, I really prefer to wait in line? I mean, I just don't hear that coming. Yep. In fact, our forecast for those types of channels is for accelerating growth. The other thing we did last year was teledoc visits. So in the first couple right. of months pre-pandemic, we did probably mm. 10,000 teledoc visits in January and February. By the end of 20, uh, we had done over a million. Right. Again, well, I don't world, think that's yeah, going to flip I back. guess the world is changing and it's going to stay that way. Jeff Sloan, CEO of Global Payments, thanks so much for joining us. Now, the CSI 300, the Chinese benchmark, has had a pretty astounding drop over the past few weeks, losing over a trillion dollars in market cap. Part of that is because of uh, China's crackdown on fintech and even broader technology companies in general. We want to talk uh, right now about that in depth with Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares. Brendan, let's focus in uh, on, on Tencent, for example. Those shares down for a second day as regulators turn their sights to Pony Ma's business empire. A $62 billion wipeout in those shares that um, is really is really mirroring what we're seeing across the broader um, tech, technology and fintech uh, uh, industry in China. Why? Yeah, I mean, you have a $77,000 fine and a $60 billion plus loss in market cap. But it, 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 it's, it's a, one, you have the uncertainty of we know that some of these uh, Chinese Internet companies don't play nice in the sandbox with one another. Uh, these anti-competitive practices are going away. And then in the case of Tencent, they do have a, a healthy uh, fintech operation. You know, they really have a duopoly in mobile payments with Ant Group. And then I, I think we, do, we are seeing a bit of a cyclical value rally, and that's, that's led to a little bit of a, a pretty, pretty severe correction here. Uh, though I think in the long run, you know, medium long-term run, uh, these growth-geared companies are where investors are going to be focused, but clearly facing a little bit of a hailwind in the, this nasty correction and uh, market rotation. So, uh, Brendan, I, I followed Alibaba, the company and the stock, really closely since its inception. And one of the things I've always been amazed about is Jack Ma's ability to, quote-unquote, manage the Chinese government and the regulatory oversight in such a way that he could grow his business to the extent that he has 
it seems like he's lost his touch. What do you think is going on there as it relates to the relationship between Alibaba and, and Tencent and some of the other big companies and the Chinese government? Well, I think these companies have become too big to fail. And the fintech part of their businesses have really skirted the regulatory of, of from the banking side, even though they do a lot of things that banks do. And so I, th- I think because they've done so well, uh, they're receiving a little bit more regulatory oversight, which which is not 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 necessarily a bad thing because you know the policymakers need these companies as much as the companies maybe need this operating environment. So so I think they will get along in in, in the medium the long term run, though we this uncertainty on exactly what this regulation is going to look like. You know um, you know markets kind of shoot first, ask questions later. People like, uh, by the way, if I lose my touch, I want it to be after I've amassed $50 billion because <laughs> I'll be cool with it at that point. No, I'm sure he's not cool with it. Jack Ma, um, uh, Pony Ma, these um, tech billionaires are also hugely innovative forces for this country. And China still wants to be on top of the game when it comes to tech, right? So they can't completely corral these people. Oh, 100%. I mean, the latest, the 14th five-year plan, domestic consumption, domestic consumption, domestic consumption. Where's that going to happen? These internet companies, right? The e-commerce companies. So, so I, I, think, I think, you know, it's, it's like what we saw with Ant Group's IPO getting pulled. Um, there's a rationale for this, that these companies have become too big to fail. Getting in front of problems is something that's done proactively from a regulatory perspective in China. But, but again, the country, the policymakers need these companies as well. And Brendan, if, if you're a U.S. investor, and I'm, you know, I'm looking at the Alibaba shareholder list and the Tencent, and it's all the big investment funds, uh, Western investment funds, I think, is it fair to say they went into these investments knowing that the quote-unquote China risk is always there and it's just something you have to deal with? It's certainly, I mean, the companies do trade at a valuation discount to their U.S. uh, counterparts for that reason. At the same time, you know, next Wednesday after the Hong Kong close, we have 10 cents of earnings release for Q4. The other players, Q4 results have been simply outstanding. You know, where where do you find these rates of growth in these very large companies? It's it's in China. So so I do think you know this crowded. There was a little bit of a crowded trade from both a retail as well as professional investor in these names. This reopening cyclical value comeback. You got to fund that trade somewhere. It's coming out of some of these growth companies. At, at the same time. Um, you just can't find growth rates uh, like like what we see in these companies. And I think uh, the market is indiscriminately uh, basically taking all of these names to the woodshed. But but the you know the ten cents, Baba's, JDs, etc. These are real companies, not not just revenue, net income, cash flow, and and I think for long term investors, you've got a great entry point. Hey, Brendan, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer for Crank Chairs based in New York City. Uh, we always go to him. We talk about some of these big Chinese names. And again, the quote-unquote China risk, where at any given time, the Chinese government can come in and uh, you know make material change to the regulatory framework, maybe the competitive landscape. Um, and there's not much that these companies uh, can do other than try to adapt. And that's kind of what we're seeing here, uh, I think, for some of these uh, Chinese companies as we hear 
from Alibaba, as we hear from Tencent, that uh, they will adapt uh, and they will be good citizens of their countries. And so we'll have to see how these companies do adapt. This is Bloomberg. One of the most read stories, as Matt pointed out earlier on the Bloomberg today, is about Goldman Sachs. No surprise there. The stock price, it's ripping. Profits are ripping despite the pandemic. But there's been some turnover in senior management. There's been some griping about the CEO and, I guess, the corporate jet, which they didn't used to have. But let's get to the this story. Shri Natarajan, finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone. Shri, thanks so much for joining us here. Great, great piece of reporting by you and the team here. What are your key takeaways as we take a look at Goldman Sachs, again, stock price up, profits up, but some turnover in the senior ranks. No, thanks for, thanks for having me. And uh, that, that is the real tension here. And the question we need to ask here is, is the stock price a leading indicator or a lagging indicator? That is to say, should we be focused on the stock price, which is uh, rightfully so sitting at an all-time high, uh, seeing the kind of year that uh, the big investment banks have had, the pandemic is obviously proved to be a source of great windfall for all of them. And Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, even a smaller bank like Jeffries have done really well. Or is it a lagging indicator? And then the one that we need to worry about are, 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 are the people departures. Are, are they a much more serious and an indicator of what's to come ahead with, with, with the type of senior management names that have left? A lot of partners around them that have left, and also several valuable MDs who seem to be uh, leaving Goldman Sachs as they uh, chase more lucrative opportunities elsewhere. And that is at the heart of the tension that is inside Goldman Sachs now. Well, hopefully, I guess if markets are efficient, the stock price should be a leading indicator, right? I mean, it's supposed to be, as we said earlier, a discounting mechanism. Um, But the thing is, Sri. One of the interesting things that I found in your story, which I think pretty much everybody read uh, over the weekend, it's still among the most read stories a day later, is that the culture at Goldman Sachs is changing. I mean, we knew it wasn't the partnership that it once was, obviously, since this share sale, um, you know, a, a couple of decades ago. But uh, it seems to be changing even more under Solomon in that he doesn't really cared that much, and correct me if I'm getting this totally wrong, about the partnership um, culture. That absolutely seems to be the sense. And you're right. Ever since this old school partnership that went, you know, the company was founded in 1869. It has a long history behind it. Uh, So when the IPO came around, it didn't mean that it would flip a switch and turn from a partnership to to some to, to a very different entity in a day but 20 years in you're certainly getting the sense that's happening uh, you also get a sense that david solomon who's who's not um, who's different from other senior goldman leaders in that he's that rare top executive inside that firm who's not a lifelong goldman sachs person who's not made his name at goldman sachs if you may his career took root at uh, uh, Mike Milken's Drexel in the 1980s uh, took flight at uh, Bear Stearns after that, and he actually joined Goldman as a partner, a, a lateral partner hire at Goldman Sachs is very rare. And I think that is uh, what makes people think to some extent that he doesn't have that sort of the same lens through which he looks at Goldman Sachs as, as some of the other leaders in the past. Um, to be fair and to look at it as, as an outsider and, and, and set aside some of the grumbling and the griping and the rankles inside the firm, 
you could argue that what he's trying to do is trying to run Goldman Sachs less as, as a sort of a group of businesses, a group of fees, and more as an operating company, one that requires great operating leverages. How do you do that? How do you make it much more attractive to your shareholder is to make sure that you cut costs, do everything that needs to be done. In the process, you will change the old ways. You will upset a lot of the people. Uh, the stock could very well outperform in the short run, but one of Goldman's uh, strongest and most memorable catchphrases always has been long-term greedy. And the question is, are the changing ha- changes happening so fast that you are giving the stock a good short-term boost, but is it going to be sustainable? Uh, is it going to make sure that the name has the same brand value 20 years down the line? And And, and, and that's sort of the kind of conversations that are uh, ricocheting around the firm right now. All right, Sri, thanks very much for joining us. Sri Nataraja there, who wrote the Goldman Sachs story about the new CEO, David Solomon, who's clearly um, doing great when it comes to costs and hit a home run uh, last year, helped uh, partially by um, chance when it comes to revenue, um, but on the other hand is rankling, um, <clears throat> I guess, the, the ties at Goldman Sachs when it comes to his use of the corporate jet and work from home. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.